Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Couple weeks ago, you know, um, on Monday, you know, I was done with my Sabbath, had a great Sabbath. Um, on Sabbaths, I usually do a few things that are just part of my ritual. I read my Bible, I worship for a bit, and then I have Ings one time me for lunch. It's just, just my rhythm, you know. It's just like fire of the, the Word, fire of the Holy Spirit, and fire of Ings one time me chili. And so um, it's just part of my, my thing, you know. And it's to the point that it's so beautiful. Like if I show up to the one time me spot, they're like, yo, it's you again. And so my order is standard. They start preparing me on the way there. No, you all don't appreciate stuff like I do. Um, and so, you know, it's part of my Sabbath rhythm. And I have great Sabbath. Uh, but you know, at, at the end uh, of the day, you know, um, I was spending some time with Amy and then uh, like an incident happened, we had a bit of a tiff and then you know, we started quarreling a bit and then uh, you know, I, I did one of those like, you know what, I need to take a walk outside and so I went for a walk outside. You know how you say like you need some br- like fresh air, you need to like clear your mind and stuff like that, but actually you want, just want to make the first person feel bad and punish the person for like, you know, messing up and all that good stuff. None of y'all think that way? Okay, it's just me. Um, well, before you assume that it's all my fault, that Andre should be nicer than Amy, that it's all his fault, don't assume anymore it's really all my fault. And so I was the one that, I was, the one that was being a jerk and all that good stuff. And so, you know, I walked the house and you know, I prayed one of those like divine prayers inviting the Holy Spirit. I was like, Spirit of God, I invite you to tell Amy that she's wrong. <laughs> and so I did one of those. Wow, you know, you just look at me like my heathen and like, okay, okay, that's cool. Um, but, you know, I, I was like, God, just let your presence descend on Amy and guide her to all truth, the truth that I am awesome and I am right. And so, you know, I, I did one of those prayers, I kid or not, and as I was walking, um, you know, God just began to reveal, like, all this stuff that was in my heart and how I was not treating her right and stuff that I needed to work on. And so, you know, I was walking and I was walking and the more I walked, the more aware of how uh, depraved I was, the more aware of like, the stuff that I needed to work on, the more aware of like, where I was at you know, in terms of my emotional health and spiritual health, like all these things that were not uh, in sync. And so I just walked to McDonald's and bought a big box of 20-piece nuggets and I was about to gouge myself there, you know, medicate my mediocrity with McNuggets. Uh, <laughs> but then I decided to bring the McNuggets back and use it as like a peace offering. And so I was like... I know my wife, she's like, chicken is her love language. And so, uh, and so I was like, I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then I, I ended up, you know, uh, curled up on the floor in the fetal position. It's just a thing I do. And so, um, and, and she was sitting next to me and I just began to talk about like, man, you know, here's all the stuff that I'm not doing right. I wish I was a better husband. And, and I just like went on this tangent, right? And of course, you know, she's like really nurturing, kind and nice and all the things that I'm not at that point of time. And um, at the end of it, you know, I, I said to her like, you know what, like, I want to make like being more patient, more kind, being more slow to anger, like my goal in life. Uh, recently, I had a bunch of people talk to me about like, what's your vision, what's your goal? And, uh, you know, I, I love dreaming. I love like having these, these like, ambitious plans. Nothing wrong with that. But these days, you know, really, like, what's on my heart is, like, becoming a more patient, a more kind, more gentle, uh, 
you know, slow to anger. You know, I, I want to like grow in these things. You know, I recently baked banana bread. I know. Wow, so domesticated. And so I baked banana bread. Um, you know, uh, I didn't know, I don't know that baking, you have to be exact. And so like, I kind of like fill it out and stuff has like happened when I bake. And so I brought like a batch for the staff to eat, like the good pasta I am. So I bought the staff and you know, we had like, um, I didn't know that you have to put salt in baked goods. It's just something I learned recently. And they said like a pinch. Uh, I have a big pinch. And so, you know, I was like, pinch. And, um, and you know, I, stop laughing. And you know, I, we need to get through this fast. And so, you know, I started stirring, I started stirring and uh, I didn't stir it well enough. And so what happened was, this is like pure like baking prodigy, okay? Um, some of my staff were like, wow, a baked banana bread, and so it's really sweet, really nice. And some of them got like a more savory version of the banana bread. And so some of it was sweet, some of it was salty. Brilliant, right? Who, who can do something like that? Andre, you know, and so I can bake banana bread, and some will have a sweet variety, some will have a salty variety, and it's like mixed experiences at the table. Uh, all that to say, you know, there are, there are aspects of me that are really sweet, but also aspects of me that are really salty, right? I'm like the banana bread, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I'm a preacher. I, I, I get it. Hey, you saw what I did there? I know, right? Uh, anyway, secrecy, humility, and all that good stuff. But yeah, you know, and many of us can relate that way, right? You know, we are not like completely all the way like transformed in the love of Christ. We are not like completely all the way kind. We are kind for the most part, the most of the days, but every now and then, you know, a little bit of like impatience comes up, a little bit of like anger comes up. And you know, we know that we are like a mixed bag. We know that we are all work in progress. And the case I'm making today for the spiritual practices is that it actually helps us uh, in the work of transformation, in the work of change. All right, are you with me? Now, we are going to go back to our base definition for the spiritual practices uh, as we move on from here. And what we're going to do today is we're going to recap a few key points that we covered uh, in the last few messages, and we're going to land these spiritual practices plain uh, in a beautiful way before we hit questions. Okay, so here's the base definition that we explored in the first week. Practices, spiritual practices are practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus that create a time and space for us to access the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and in doing so, be transformed from the inside out. Spiritual practices are a way that we co-labor with God in the work of transformation. They do not replace the work of the Holy Spirit. Hear me in saying this. You don't like collect all these spiritual practices, and then boom, you're in a life of flourishing. The spiritual practices are actually a way for us to invite the work of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, who He Himself is the agent of transformation, we, don't, we cannot self-engineer for ourselves such a life of transformation. We need the Holy Spirit. And the spiritual practices are a way we invite the Spirit to come and work in us. And it's a way we co-labor with Him unto the work of transformation. Are you with me? Thank you. And so let's recap some of the important points that we covered in the series so far. Number one, spiritual formation is not just a Christian thing, but a human thing. We can all agree that there are forces at play today that seek to shape and form us, be it cultural norms or the lies that we believe uh, through experiences in life. I read recently in a book, it says that uh, to be human is to be dynamic. To be human is to be dynamic. And that means that to be human means that we are continuously and progressively and consistently being shaped, molded, formed, transformed, if you will. And the question is not whether you are being conformed, but is what you're being conformed into. 
All of us are experiencing change, even as I speak. The question of Yahweh is not whether you are changed or can be changed, but what you are changed into. To whose image are you being conformed into? Are you with me? Second point, the journey of spiritual practices is a unique one. God created all of y'all. You are not a glorious accident. You are an intentional miracle from the hand of God. God created you with a unique personality, bends, likes, and dislikes. And the spiritual practices takes into account of that. And so wise training, as we covered in week two, takes into account your personality type, your passions, your likes and dislikes, and find a, a formula or find a rhythm of spiritual practices that really speaks into you, that causes you to experience the, bonding, uh, the bound, bond, bond, abundant life-giving presence of our Lord. Are you with me? The goal here isn't for all of us to conform to a fixed expression of spirituality, but to find our unique expression our unique rhythm of spiritual disciplines. Are you with me? And now to balance that, spiritual formation also considers the need of the hour. We all have bends in life, and we all know that if you overindulge a certain bend you have in life, it always leads to dysfunction. If you have a bend like me, hyper-introvert, INTJ, people are optional in your life. If you are like that, right, Okay, and you have like these like highly introverted tendencies, then the spiritual practice of community, of confession, is something that you need to inculcate into your life to offset that bend. The spiritual practices, are, they can be used to offset our bends, and not only that, they can also be used to help us overcome present struggles and sins. Now, we looked at this chart the last time we spoke, and uh, this is a chart that's done by a man that's much smarter than me, and so he plots the spiritual practices in four axis points, uh, abstinence, stuff that you do alone, engagement, and community. Now, we can use this chart really wisely. For example, if you battle with... A, a certain addiction or an overindulgence is something, then you should incorporate a spiritual practice of abstinence to offset that bend. Likewise, if you struggle with a sin of omission, something like lukewarmness, independence, and isolation, then you should incorporate a spiritual practice of engagement. Are you with me? Beautiful. Now let's look at a passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Familiar passage of Scripture, and let's read it. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul, in this verse, seems to be saying that as we contemplate, as we direct the inner gaze of our heart to His presence and His beauty, as we behold Him, that act, that posture of heart begins to do something in us. As we direct the inner gaze of our soul to His beauty and His presence, it actually does something to us. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to that work to that word in the third line, are being transformed. Now, that word for transformation is the Greek word metamorpho, metamorpho, and it's where we get the word metamorphosis, right? Now, uh, this word is uh, translated, uh, you know, in, uh, just like to bring up a couple of translations, one from the dictionary, Merriam Webster. It says this it's a profound change in form from one stage to the next in the life history of an organism, as from the caterpillar to the pupa and the pupa to the adult butterfly. 
Now, I really love this uh, lexicon definition of the word metamorpho. It says this, to change the essential form or nature of something from the inside out. To be changed. The essential form or nature of something from the inside out. Now, before we move on too quickly from just a definition, before we move on from this moment too quickly, I'd like us to all take a moment to consider this. Paul is saying that this level of change, of transformation, is possible for you and me. Just think about it for a moment. That is the word used by Paul and all the writers of the New Testament for the level of change that is possible for you and I in the new covenant of the Spirit. Forget about everything you heard about the possibility of change, of transformation in your life. And let the scriptures inform your imagination. To be changed, the essential form or nature of something. To be changed from the inside out. That is the level of change, of transformation that is on offer for you and I through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we talked a lot about how in the last nine weeks, right? we talked about certain practices that you have to put into place, how to wisely interact with the spiritual practices. But it's my concern and fear that we've talked a lot about the how we are to change, but we haven't really tackled or broached the subject of what we are to change into. What are we to be transformed into? What is the goal of life? What is the vision we are to cast for our lives in the work of transformation. What is the goal? Change or transformation as a goal seems to be too broad or nebulous. For some, transformation looks like being less prone to sin, overcoming certain addictions. For others, it looks like being better at our jobs or at ministry. But is this the goal really? Or have we become guilty of settling far beneath what Christ has on offer? Thus, Willard has this to say. He says, the greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. He goes on to say that we have abandoned, for the most part, the way of Jesus in the modern church and settled for what he calls the gospel of sin management. He goes on to explain this. History has brought us to the point where the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with sin, with wrongdoing or wrongbeing and its effects. Life, our actual existence, is not included in what is now presented as the heart of the Christian message, or it is only included only marginally. Jesus' grand vision for your life and mine is not just one where we grow to overcome sin, important as it may be, but that is not the full vision. We know change and transformation is possible, but the question is, what are we to be changed into? What is the vision we are to cast for our lives? Or better yet, what is Jesus' vision for your life and mine? What is the end goal of spiritual formation and transformation? I'd like to propose to you today, for week 10 of spiritual practices, that the end goal of spiritual formation is love. Love is the end goal. For week 10 of spiritual practices, I'd like to speak to the subject of love as the end goal. I contemplated calling love as the end game, but that seems too youth pastory for me. So, love as the end goal. Sorry, that wasn't appropriate. But yes, let's look at a quote uh, from a man whose name I cannot pronounce. 
uh, he goes and he, but he says awesome things. He says this, love is at the heart of life with Jesus. What a line. Love is at the heart of life with Jesus. It is the, the defining word in our talk about God. It is the most central word used to express our way of being with other people. It is the highest and most noble characteristic to have as a student of the luminous Nazarene. That's a term that Albert Einstein actually coined, the, uh, the luminous Nazarene. Yet that one word, love, is curiously missing in the mission statements of most Christian organizations. How come a word so central to the nature of God is so seldom mentioned in the organizational structures of God's people? I've heard it said recently uh, in, in a sermon that love is the acid test of spiritual formation. Now, you're not familiar with the term. It simply means this. It is the marker of success. Love is the marker of success of, for spiritual formation. It's how we know we are successfully being formed in the spirit. All of the spiritual disciplines are not for the appeasement of God. We do not earn favor with God because we have the disciplines. Rather, the disciplines enable us to greater enjoy and experience God. And in doing so, we fall more in love with Him. But there's the other aspect of love, that we are, we are not just formed in our love for Him, but we are also formed in our love for others. My favorite definition of spiritual formation by far is simply this. It is the process by which we become more like Jesus. In Jesus' vision for life in the kingdom, or life under his reign. There is nothing more important than becoming the kind of people who first receive love, are permeated with the love of God, and then become a people who give love. In Jesus' vision for the kingdom, for your life and mine, there is nothing more important than for us to grow to become the people, a people that first know how to receive love, and then know how to give love, to be a kind of people who love God and people. When asked which is the greatest commandment in the Lord, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We've read this scripture many times in our Christian lives, but it does us good to even consider the weight of what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the greatest commandment, the most important truth, that which you, have, you should put the most weight on in all of the scriptures is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. It's not a peripheral thing, something that we push to the side and explore the deeper, more profound truths. But it is that to which we ought to put the most weight on. Are you with me? Then he says this, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it and saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Both are important and both play into each other and both validate each other. Now, Jesus was a rabbi or a teacher, and he's the best and most brilliant one in all of existence, but he wasn't the first. There are a few great rabbis in Jewish history. One of them will be a rabbi named Hallel, Rabbi Hallel. He'll be a brilliant rabbi in his own school and all that stuff. Look it up. Uh, there's a story that goes, a certain non-Jew came before Rabbi, Rabbi Halal and said this, I will convert to Judaism on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah, the entire Torah, all of the law, while I stand on one foot. Teach me the whole Torah, Rabbi, if you're that awesome, if your God is that good. Teach me the entire law 
while I stand on one foot. And if you are successful in doing so, I will convert to Judaism. It's a brilliant story. And this is what Rabbi Hillel said to the man who came to him in such a manner. He says this, What is hateful to you, do not do, sorry, I spelled it wrong, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. What is hateful to you, do not do, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. That is, the, is what we're going after, to love our neighbor. That which is hateful, we do not do to our neighbor. The rest, the rest of the Torah is commentary. The rest of the law are explanations on how do you properly love your neighbor. The rest is commentary. If I was a Pentecostal preacher and I would title my sermon, the rest is commentary, I'll say to you, guys, today's my sermon title, the rest is commentary. Turn to your neighbor and say, the rest is commentary. Look up the sky and say, the rest is commentary. The rest is commentary. Love is the goal. Love your neighbor and the rest of the Torah is commentary. Now, how do I know if I'm growing in love? Is it even quantifiable, measurable? I think that you can measure love and your growth in love. But the problem in discussing this would be what most of us commonly understand love to be, or rather our culture's definition of love. In our culture, our city, we have to clarify right off the bat what love is. In my experience, when we talk about love today, it's often different from what the scriptures define love as. Today, in our culture, in our city, love often looks like tolerance. Now, there's a good kind, let's agree to disagree and move on from here, but there's a negative kind that's more common today. It goes like this, you let me do whatever the heck I want, and I will let you do whatever the heck you want. That is what our culture defines as love, as acceptance. I like one writer's summary on our current cultural climate. He says this, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned as bigots, as hateful, as anti-love. The second way our culture defines love is this, niceness. Niceness is a great virtue and in many ways a subset of the Jesus kind of love. But we know this, we know that some people aren't nice because they've experienced the transformative love of Jesus. They are nice people on the earth, but it doesn't mean that they have experienced the transformational power of our Lord. Some are nice because they are in sales and you are a mark and they want to sell you something, right? Some are nice because they want something out of you. Some are nice because it's culturally virtuous to be a nice person. And some are nice because they have like won the genetic lottery and the mouse bricks lottery and they're just like a very sanguine, chill kind of person. They are nice because they are awesome, right? Uh, how many of you have done the, the search online of like your favorite movie and then your mouse bricks personality and like what it comes out, like what character you are in the movie? Let me tell you, 100% of the time, I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. I'm TJ. Search up Star Wars, I'm not even Darth Vader, right? Darth Vader is awesome, right? Bad guy for a start, but then he turns into good down the road. I'm Emperor Palpatine. Come on, man. <laughs> Harry Potter, I'm he who must not be named. You know, and so I'm always the bad guy, right? Right? My point is this, right? I digress. I am for niceness 100%, but niceness is definitely not the same as love. And those quizzes suck. Okay, now, <laughs> desire. That is the third way our culture defines love as desire. Do yourself a favor, okay, if you haven't already. Try Ings wantan mee. It really holds up. It really holds up. 
really holds up. And there's a reason why I have it every week. Now, when I say I love the wonton mee, I love the wonton mee, right? It means I want to eat it, right? It means I want to consume it. It means I want to get, hear me saying this, pleasure out of it. I want to get something out of it instead of give. I want to get rather than to give. Love, as defined by scriptures, is not tolerance, it's not niceness or desire. The word used to describe the Jesus kind of love in the Gospels is agape, which if you look into it, would have the connotations of it being an action, not just a mere feeling, and having at its essence a spirit of self-sacrifice. It's not a feeling or desire, it's more than that. It's an attitude, an action that comes from the heart. Now, let's look at a couple of definitions of what the biblical definition of love is. Love is the decision and the discipline of the heart to will another's good at the expense of oneself. A definition from the guys at the Bible Project, it says this, the word love is one of the softliest words in our language as it primarily refers to a feeling that happens to a person. In the New Testament, however, love refers to a way of treating people that was defined by Jesus himself, seeking the well-being of others regardless of their response. The goal of the spiritual disciplines of practices, our formation, it is to grow to be a people who are so permeated with the love of God that even the love of enemy comes naturally. As you said many times, you cannot think your way into Christ-likeness. You have to live into it. You cannot think your way into becoming a person of love. You have to live into it. And you do so, my opinion, through the spiritual practices. I'm going to wrap up shortly. Uh, but Ruth Haley Barton, we've quoted her a bunch of times. She has this brilliant work on uh, uh, listing down some sins and negative patterns and the corresponding disciplines that, uh, that really speak into some of these sins and negative patterns. Can we have that slide up? It's a bit small, but I'm just going to go through a few. Like, for example, you know, uh, we struggle with gossip and sins of speech. Uh, try incorporating silence and self-examination uh, to mitigate that um, Envy is a good one if you struggle with envy or being discontent. Uh, practice solitude, some self-examination to see where you're at and why you struggle with that. Attend to the desire in God's presence. Ask Him to speak to you with regards to that desire. Over-busyness is a good one. We all struggle with some form of over-busyness and hurry. And a discipline that we ought to incorporate in our life to really mitigate and, and, and fight against that compulsion is Sabbath, having a rule of life. And... Uh, a good one to look at is also the lack of direction. If you struggle with having a lack of direction, not knowing uh, where to go in life, practice discernment and community. Now, I bring up this list for a reason. Let's have a familiar passage of Scripture up in 1 Corinthians 13. This is a familiar passage of Scripture. We hear it quoted in weddings all the time. A pastor has to preach it once a year in order to get his credentials. But anyway, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm just kidding. Uh, goes like this, familiar, right? goes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, an exercise that I like to uh, partake in often is I like to speak my own name, uh, insert my own name into the scriptures. And so sometimes I go, Andre is patient and kind. 
Not true. Andre does not envy or boast. Sometimes Andre is not arrogant. Uh, Andre is not rude. Work in progress. Andre does not insist on its own way. You know, stuff like that. And it really uh, makes the scripture come more alive and really speaks into our present condition. I'd like to propose today that through the spiritual practices, we can take steps into living out this verse. That we don't approach this verse uh, passively, but we actively engage with the Word of God and we make small incremental changes in our lives in the right direction in order to live into the vision of becoming a people of love. Are you with me? For example, let's have the corresponding disciplines up. Love is patient and kind. In order to do that, I practice discernment, community, and serving. Love does not envy or boast. I practice secrecy and simplicity. It's not rude. Insists on its own way. I practice serving and prayer. The last one, you know, let's, let's just skip down. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I practice confession and repentance. You kind of get the idea. The spiritual practices have the potential to form us into the people that God desires for us to be. It could be my personality type, but I believe 90% of the work that goes into loving people well is becoming emotionally and spiritually healthy. When you are emotionally and spiritually healthy, love becomes a natural outworking, a byproduct of the health that's within you. Right? I'll close off with one final story. I'm not taking a while, but it's all unto a good goal. One of my favorite stories of transformation starts off in John chapter 13. Right? We're not going to look at the scripture, but in John 13, Jesus brings the disciples together to celebrate the Passover. Right? The chapter details one of the most significant moments of Jesus' servanthood where he washes the disciples' feet. But also, the chapter details a moment of deep confusion for the disciples. Judas, Judas was told by Jesus that he would betray him, and then he runs off. Peter remarks that he would never betray Jesus, but in a few days he would. The disciples' image of Messiah as a revolutionary military leader overthrowing the Roman oppressors is falling apart. Jesus was going to the cross to die. He was leaving them. The disciples were frenetic and honestly afraid. But in the midst of all of that chaos and confusion, uncertainty and fear, we see this verse in John chapter 13, verse 23. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And we know this to be John the Apostle. Who was the Apostle John? Early in the Gospels, we read that one of the nicknames for the Apostle John was the son of Thunder. Cue the ACDC music man. Thunder. Uh, no, okay. Anyway, son of thunder. Sorry, he didn't. Right, do you remember a story where James and John, right, they offered to call down fire on behalf of Jesus? On, on behalf of Jesus? Like, Jesus, you have been so disrespected by these villagers. Permit us to, you know, call down fire on your behalf. And then Jesus is like, oh my gosh, where do I even start with you? Right? Let me take matters with my own hands. Let me kill them all, was what John was essentially saying in the politically correct Christianese. But if you read on further in the Bible, that same John, the son of thunder, towards the end of his life, what was John's nickname? The apostle of love. In 1 John, he sums up all that he has learned, experienced, seen, and heard in three words. God is love. How do you go from being a son of thunder 
to an apostle of love, to one who seeks the demise, the destruction of others, to being one known for love. My personal hypothesis would be this, that in the midst of the chaos, the confusion, and the uncertainties, John leaned and rest upon Jesus. In the midst of chaos, uncertainty, fear, the frenetic reactions of others, John rested on Jesus. I would say that the same would apply for us. How do we go from being unloving people to ones who love well? I propose that in the midst of chaos, confusion, and the uncertainties of life, we look to lean on Jesus. And in doing so, we're no longer swayed by life and to some degree the whims of people, but we can rest assured in God's love. That is how we become a people of love. I'd like to suggest to you that love isn't just the acid test for spiritual formation. It is the acid test of life well lived. Of life well lived. I'll demonstrate that love by quoting John MacArthur in my sermon. Just kidding. Sorry, all my jokes are not working today. John MacArthur is great. Uh, my disagree on some beliefs, but it's a brilliant quote. He says this, The intellectual, emotional, volitional, and physical elements of personhood are all involved in loving God. Genuine love for God is an intelligent love, an emotional love, a willing love, and an active love. In short, it is a comprehensive, all-consuming love and singular admiration. Last line, God's wholehearted love. Believers must not be reciprocated with half-hearted devotion. God's wholehearted love for you and I must not be reciprocated with half-hearted devotion. How do we grow to become a people of love? My proposal and my suggestion to you today is that we grow in love by incorporating some of these practices that leads us to emotional and spiritual health so that we can better love the people around us. Amen? All right. We're going to do our Q&A now. Are you still alive? Awesome. Cool. All right. Can we have the table? Uh, let's have the slide up. And so, um, as usual, Slido is uh, available. You can go to www.slido.do and uh, event code the city if you have not gotten your questions in. But we've gotten some uh, amazing questions in already. And I've spoken for the last 30 to 40 minutes. And so, for the most part, Janice and Matt will be taking all your questions and I'll just sit there and look pretty. Okay, can we invite Matt and Jen to come up, Evan, as they take on your questions? Awesome. Thank you. We should do this table thing often so that I can, I'll preach shorter. Alright, are you all cool? Okay, um, so this is the way it's going to work. We have some questions that we've already uh, collated uh, before uh, this series, uh, before this sermon, and so uh, we've looked into some of these questions and they have prepared responses, uh, some of them I've prepared responses for. And so what, it's going to do is that what we're going to do is that we're going to put up a question and uh, one of us is going to give a response and uh, you know, depending on time, uh, someone else will chime in on that response as well. And so the first question is this. Start off light and easy. Question one. How do you navigate the space between implementing spiritual practices and the freedom to put them aside when needed? Light and easy. Janice? Right. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so I was thinking about this and um, I think... So the, the first response would be to start off easy to say yes. If you're like going for like a clear yes, no, but with a lot more that goes with it. 
Um, I think, uh, so the analogy of like a plant, okay? Um, this was not planned. This was like during just now. I just think of uh, a plant where uh, th there are many things that I can do without, right? But um, there are certain clear things that a plant will need, right? Uh, the correct amount of sunlight, nutrients, and, and the correct amount of moisture. And, and so if we look at spiritual practices in terms of like um, tools uh, of experiencing God and in means of grace, uh, then in that sense, uh, spiritual practices can kind of evolve in the sense that in different seasons in life, uh, there, there are different needs of the, the plant to grow, right? So it can evolve in terms of intensity, emphasis of certain things or aspects that, that will help the plant to grow. But ultimately, there are certain things that are super basic. And so what is life-giving, right? And so if we look at that as, as our own lives, I think in different seasons and, and transitioning changes in life, which everyone goes through at all times, mm. right? Um, I think there is a yes that there is freedom to put certain practices aside, especially when at that season it ceases to be life-giving for the person. Right. And, and I don't think that if you really look at it, any one time, anyone can practice all the spiritual practices in its entirety mm. and, and not underemphasize some. Right. So it's really discerning what at that point gives consolation to your, your, your inner soul and, and what gives life and then evolving uh, as that goes. Right. Yeah. 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 I think there's a similar question on sometimes the spiritual disciplines are like real great, we find it super life-giving, but um, you know, somewhere down the road, uh, we find that that spiritual discipline becomes like really like tough, burdensome, really hard to relate, really hard to connect. Uh, I think scripture reading would be a discipline that uh, I have high moments, I have low moments for myself. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it, it really relates to that question as well. And so uh, my response to that is like, you know, sometimes you just have to switch it up, right? You know, sometimes I switch up uh, the way I read uh, scripture in order to bring about a certain freshness. Um, I think many times when I come into that kind of like, uh, uh, like crossroads, if you will, uh, I will even explore the idea of like, hey, maybe God is speaking to me or wanting me to learn to hear his voice in another way. Uh, you know, for example, if you mainly hear God at home in your room in a quiet and you find that it isn't as life-giving uh, anymore, um, try walking out outside. I know, really hot, really sweaty. <laughs> you experience long suffering and all that good stuff but sometimes you know, I think it's, it's helpful to switch it up to experience God uh, in new ways and to find his voice uh, even in new means new manners and I think that is really important uh, even in spirituality because uh, then God sees us or like prayer and communion God sees us to become a formula that we exercise yeah. but you know even in doing so it, it tells us that God is dynamic God is relational and he longs for us to experience him in different ways as well all right uh, maybe let's go to an easy question. Uh, how do you navigate unanswered prayer? Matt? <laughs> okay, uh, this, this Take question... Take your time, man. This one only wash. <laughs> <laughs> this question came up uh, as one of the top uh, uh, things uh, for the Slido. So I just want to say that it's a tough question to answer, but it's a question that we cannot afford uh, not to answer because I think lots of people experience unanswered prayer. Um, so, uh, first of all, it's tough, um, but um, I want to say that, uh, okay, so there's a Bana research that was done uh, re recently called The Connected Generation, and uh, it says that, uh, that one, for Singapore, right, the top reason for people 
to have doubts about spirituality or about the spiritual is uh, unanswered prayer. And this ranks higher than uh, the average in Asia and, and the world. So somehow we have a little bit of like a transactional uh, thing with, with, with our beliefs uh, about God. You no, know, we think that, oh, we got to do this, 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 and then this, this, this will be returned back to us. So, okay, just, just to shape, uh, just to frame all of that, um, to say that um, prayer is uh, about us uh, enjoying God. It's not something transactional, but it's meant to be something that uh, we, we communicate with God and He communicates to us. So when we experience unanswered prayer, it could be, it should be a, a, a place where we bring mm. it into a conversation with, with God. You know, why is this happening? Don't just not take it as like an like a economic kind of a transactional kind of a thing. Uh, but to, to, to say that um, uh, God is still sovereign and still in control and to be able to come to the place where you... Uh, you know, submit and uh, be able to surrender to His plan in our lives. I think it's th it doesn't cover everything, so I'll let other people talk about it. Yep. No, oh, is that other people me? Uh, <laughs> so I was he looked thinking, at you. So. <laughs> so I was thinking all kinds of scenarios where I have personal experience unanswered prayer. I think this question can come from so many different scenarios. Yeah. Right. And so, for example, sometimes one of the unanswered prayers when we pray for healing, you know, whether it's someone that you, you know, mm. in your family or someone that you don't mm. really know, mm. uh, how does that look like? How do you navigate yeah. that? And then there's this scenario where unanswered prayer is like you, you're waiting on God for, for something. Mm. Either it's a promise of God that you've received before, a prophetic word and answered, right? And so I, I, I realized that so sometimes it's just like you said, like just bring it before God and, and, and give space and have a space where you feel there's safe community even if it's one yeah. other person just to lament or, or just grieve. Like mm. if, if it's a place of pain, mm. uh, God, you know, this is not okay, yeah. right? And, and, and I think that's really important uh, as part of the process of, of navigating. And, and, and that could be in a, uh, in a situation where there's pain suffering, um, sickness, or just crisis, right, yeah. death. Um, in the situation where it's like you're waiting on God's promises and provision, uh, but we know that, that where there is a promise of provision, there is a process, mm -hmm. right? And so how do we navigate that as waiting on God? How do we wait on God? Read up your Bible. So many verses talk about waiting. And that waiting is not I'm waiting without uh, hope. Yes. Right, it's waiting with expectation. Yes. It's, it's active waiting. Yeah. How do you navigate? Look to look to God. Look to Scripture. Yes. Uh, bring it before God. Yeah. Take it out with Him, and and He can handle it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think my personal experience with this thing of unanswered prayer. Um, I've actually spoken about unanswered prayer in church, uh, a year ago, and um, you know, I think many of you will be familiar with the story. I was doing a series on miracles. I was teaching on unanswered prayer that very Sunday, and then I got a call from a doctor after that sermon, uh, informing me that I, I wasn't doing well uh, in terms of health, and I needed to go to the hospital right away. And so, you know, all th sorts of thoughts came running through my mind, like, is this spiritual warfare? Devil, where are you? Uh, you know, is this like God trying to tell me something, or does miracles even work? And, you know, I think scripture is right in saying that we are prone to wonder, and I think by that, you know, it means different stuff, but I think more so our minds are prone to wonder. And what a, one of the things I would advocate for is to have like parameters for your thought life, uh, sticks in the ground that will not be moved. And so one of them being the goodness of God. Like, is God absolutely good? Yes. No matter what happens, no matter what I face in life, is God absolutely good? Yes. And that is a stick that I would refuse to move. No matter what I see in life, 
that will not ever be in question. Uh, Bill Johnson is inspiring in many ways, but he has this line in saying that I will not sacrifice the goodness of God on the altar of human reasoning just so I can be provided an explanation. And many times, you know, we try to like engineer some kind of explanation for why things happen. And sometimes, you know, it's just to, you know, convince ourselves that, that hey, you know, that there must be a grand plan reason. And, some, and I, I would say I would veer away from putting explanations on things that God's voice is not present in. I think that is a slippery road down to deception and bad theology. Yeah, and, so, uh, and also uh, refrain from coming to theological conclusions while you're in crisis. There's something about just being smart in crisis, not making major decisions, not coming to conclusions uh, in the midst of like emotional turmoil and struggle. Does that make sense? Cool. Um, I think there's a, there's a great one on solitude. You all know you love solitude. I, I do, do too. I do, we yeah. do. But uh, there's, there's a great question on solitude. This one is like very chim. So, Janice? On solitude. That's so, a good question. Yeah, it's, up yeah. there. Uh, it's a great question and that I can resonate with. I, I think this just makes it clear. I, I don't know if some of you were there and one of the things that we mentioned in the message on solitude is all the more uh, uh, we realize that in our culture and in, in, in just the way that the world we live in, there's so much need to be still, quiet down, be by ourselves and be confronted with issues of our heart, right? And I, I think um, if I'm understanding this question correctly, uh, you know, whoever asked it is, that when I spend solitude time, uh, certain things surface, right? That makes a feeling that, that I feel like I'm depressed or I feel hurt. I feel the pain that's in my heart. And um, how can we address this? Do it. Um, <laughs> and, and find, uh, I pray that you have someone that you can process through mm. and then go back and then spend some more time. Journey, press in, don't say, oh, you know, um, this is too painful. Um, yeah, but of course, again, like it's meant to be life-giving. Uh, that doesn't mean that pruning doesn't hurt, right? And sometimes um, solitude does that to us, mm. is that we face with our discontentment, our, our anger, our pains. Mm. Uh, so addressing it means uh, not avoid it. Mm. Um, know that, okay, this is God's grace, mm. right? Because it's a means of grace and actually embrace it and say, God, mm. um, this hurts right now. Mm. I don't know if I can do this here somewhere yeah. again. And then just, just t talk about that with God. And, and if you look at, again, I think we talked about the, this, this contrast of consolation and desolation, right? which is a concept of uh, Ignatian spirituality, but it's really helpful. Shout out Isaac. <laughs> yes. So it's like light and darkness, right? Consolation are things that draw us to God, light. And, and there's desolation, which is like that which withdraw us from God. Mm. And so if this scenario happens as this question and you, you come out feeling more depressed and hurt, ask like, you know, Holy Spirit, is this consolation? Am I moving towards God? Is this pain going to move me towards God, towards light? Or is it uh, something that I'm drawing inward and in self-pity? Yeah. Like then there, there is a big difference there where you need some discernment or, you know, that's where you talk through and process with somebody. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Matt, you have anything to add? Yeah, um, 
this thing about desolation and consolation is is all one thing. It's all about God trying to draw you closer to to Him. So um, there's this quote that I remember quite clearly. It's, it says, uh, "Because He loves us, He will not spare us. Because He loves us, He will not spare us from uh, showing the." the dirt or the darkness in our lives because he also wants to redeem mm. that also. And, and as an encouragement to, to people who are, you know, who are afraid that if you go into solitude, you, know, you will be faced uh, with all this darkness in your life and you feel overwhelmed, right? There's a verse in the Bible that says, it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide an escape so that you can bear up under it. Okay, I mean, the, okay, it's talking about temptation, but I think the character of God is such that uh, when he brings you to face to face with some darkness or some dirt in your life, he, he, he's not, the purpose is not so that you'll be overwhelmed and drowning in it, but the purpose is so that you can come to terms with it and eventually overcome it. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Okay, well... You are getting a bunch of questions in. Uh. Where were you all? But uh, I don't think I can answer everything. But uh, what, what we're going to do is I'm just going to answer one quick one here. And then uh, I have another question that I think will be very relevant to hit uh, before we close. Sounds good? Yeah, I might just go to top of five. But you know, we are charismatic. Time is just a guideline. Anyway, um, well, today my jokes are just like, bah! okay. Uh, too late. Uh, well, uh, well, this question uh, it goes uh, with all these spiritual practices. Which ones are non-negotiable? Like which ones, like you have to do one. Um, well, you know, I feel it's uh, subjective because you know, if you ask me, I'll tell you like you have to do all these eight. Like if you ask me, uh, what are the non-negotiables? I think you know we of course have to have value for what God tells us to place value on. So I think. Uh, off the top of my head, scripture and prayers, like these are like your mainstay. They should always be part of your starting lineup. But I think beyond that, it's also being self-aware of where your bends are, where you are prone to experience dysfunction. And so if you are like me, hurry, anxiety, over busyness, then Sabbath should be your mainstay. It should be your non-negotiable. You should never remove it from the starting lineup. And so, you know, I think it's also about discovering uh, disciplines in such a way of discerning between whether it forms you in, in the sense of like, it's like, okay, really resistant. You are like going against the grain of multiple things and it's really forming you. It's tough, it's difficult, but it's like a good kind of pain. Or, or whether it frustrates you. Discerning whether it forms or frustrates you. Because sometimes, right, that kind of discipline, that kind of expression, you're just trying to like fit yourself in that mode. It's like, I have to experience God like that, like that person. Oftentimes it's comparison. But it might not be your lot. It might not be your path. And so you need discernment to distinguish between, the, between what forms you and what frustrates you. And discernment comes in multiple ways. It comes with like counsel, experiencing the voice of the Holy Spirit, blah, blah, blah. I did a whole message on that. You can look it up. Okay? Uh, but yes, on that topic of discernment, I'd like to hit uh, this final question before we end. And feel free to chime in uh, even as we close shortly. But is this question on discernment. Uh, on discernment, how do we prevent ourselves from being paralyzed by indecision while not erring on the extreme of hasty, premature decision? Uh, I don't know how many of you can relate this question. I certainly do. And uh, my answer might not be uber-duber conclusive. Uh, we can chat more at the end of the service if you like. 
Now, with discernment, that is why, this is why precisely I advocate for a process or a framework for decision-making and discernment. Uh, a good framework that I use is like the Ignatian framework. You can Google it, you can look it up. Uh, it's all, all really good stuff, and we have it on the app as well as part of the practices. Uh, check that out. But uh, in decision-making, uh, depending on the nature of it, uh, but for the most part, I would always uh, have a rule of involving people in the decision-making, and so your significant other, but also good counsel, close friends who know you. By know you, I mean like they know the crap about you. They know like stuff that like comes up and uh, there's not all that pleasant. They know you well. Have those people involved in the process. And you know your bent, right? If you are prone to indecision, you're prone to being overly cautious to the point of fear, right? Then you need to have people in your life that keep you accountable to a timeline. And so these people will keep checking back with you on like, have you made a decision already? Here's a timeline. Here's the intended date that you need to make a decision. And so then you are, you, the impetus to make decision is stronger and you are less prone to indecision. The inverse is also true. If you are prone to quick, hasty decisions, you are prone to be like quick on the trigger, dramatic, like big life decisions made in an instant, then you need people in your life that hold you accountable to a timeline, right? Hold you accountable to like, no, you don't get to make that decision yet. You can only make it two weeks after, two months after, right? And have these people walk you through that long process. And I think it's also about understanding the heart of the practice of discernment, right? I wrote a few, right? One, it's the recognition of God's lordship in our lives. It's posturing to hear his voice. Number two, it's not about getting it right. It's an acknowledgement, like God, I invite you to speak. Right? And our confidence is not so much in our ability to hear God well, but in His ability to speak and guide us if necessary. If God wants to speak to you, if God wants to lead you, if God wants to shift the circumstance of life, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Our confidence is not so much in our ability to hear, but in His ability to speak. Right? And so discernment is a posture of heart, of body, great intention to hear the voice of God. And that's, this topic is so huge, so we can chat more about it uh, at the end of service. But do you all have any final thoughts on discernment or on practices that you'd like to share? Oh, I just want to comment a little Sure. So uh, Janice and I took a, a break uh, for, uh, in our lives for just discerning God's will. And at the end of it, we felt like uh, we didn't really reach there. But we look at the process, that uh, the three months that we took, and the process was we learned about what what it meant uh, by uh, active waiting. And yeah, sometimes we don't know what, what the, uh, we expect that, oh, we took three months off and then, mm. oh, God has lots of time to speak to us. But uh, it's not our, us to decide whether God would speak to us uh, then, then. Um, but uh, to, you know, uh, to let him have the space uh, and, and, and uh, mm. give ourselves not just the three months, but our, the whole of our lives for him to, Review what he wants to reveal yeah. to us. Yeah. Uh, just an encouragement to not give up, lah. Mm. Yeah. I think that. No, you good. Good. God is good. God is good. <laughs> all, all the time. All the time. <laughs> well, uh, one of the top entries now is uh, not a question, but I think Andre's jokes are awesome. Thank you, person. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, 
one, one final thought, and I think this plays into what I said earlier. A uh, question is, what, can one will oneself to becoming more loving through discipline? I would uh, even like, extend the boundaries of the question to go, can one will oneself into a transformed life? Uh, let me reiterate what I said earlier, that spiritual practices are a means of invitation for the Holy Spirit to come and work in us. We cannot self-engineer a life of transformation. We cannot will ourselves into greater love. We need the Holy Spirit. But we can, in our daily actions, put ourselves in uh, scenarios and places where love is then proven and refined and where love grows. And we need the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the spiritual practices and disciplines is all about. It's about invitation, but also a co-laboring and partnering with the work of the Spirit. He is working in our lives and He longs to work in yours. And the spiritual practices, the disciplines, these small changes in our lifestyle are our yes to Him, are our yes to the work of the Spirit. Beyond just a profession, it is an intention that is communicated through our body, through our schedules, to the work of the Spirit. It's our yes to Him. Amen? Thank you so much. Ten weeks of spiritual practices. (laughs) 